Well, I went back and uh, checked my journal, and the day was May the 26th, and I was doing what I normally do in the morning, so just uh, reading my Bible, journaling, and praying a little bit, and was working through First Peter, just verse by verse, just enjoying that. But on this day, the words I came to probably struck me more than any other verse in First Peter. Not that there's not great truth all along, but just in this moment, I remember the day so clearly where God just sort of filled my heart with a little bit more, I think, of his perspective and his heart. Here was the words I read. Peter was describing to the people he was writing to their life before God. And he said it this way, the empty way of life that you used to have, the empty way of life. And, and I just got thinking about that phrase, just got thinking about what Peter was saying as he wrote to these people. You know, before you used to live in emptiness. It's such a picture of what the life without God is like. It's the picture that Peter is giving us. Life without God is void, is meaningless, it's empty. It's the picture of here's, here's life without God and we're constantly trying to fill it with all sorts of things, but they're always just draining out the bottom. It's just emptiness. And that's the description that Peter gives to his readers of the day. And as I was pondering that, I was thinking that's sort of where my heart went next. And the answer is here is, well, why would anyone live that way? Why, why would you live in emptiness, always trying to fill up life, but never feeling like it satisfies? And then the answer comes in the second half of verse 18. He says, it's been handed down to you from your ancestors. So the empty way of life handed down from your ancestors. And just what struck me is that some people are living an empty life and it just seems normal to them. It's what they have always known. It's what their parents knew. It's what their grandparents knew. It's what their great-grandparents knew. It's just been the entire course of generation after generation living an empty life. And why are they living it is because they just don't know anything better. And my heart just began to break for people that I knew in our country, but then as I just began to play that out, began to think of places in the world, and I don't know what the numbers are, but there are billions of people in the world who know nothing of Jesus or his gospel message, and the communities they live in have for generations never heard of the good news of Christ. And my heart just began to break for them. You know, emptiness after emptiness after emptiness, generation after generation after generation. And, and in that morning, I just remember what I started to do was go through and pray for people I knew in those situations or countries I knew in different places in the world and just praying, God, use me, use us, use anybody, send your laborers, send your laborers, God, for someone to have never heard the good news of Jesus and just be living, as Peter describes it, an empty life. Oh, God, would you send people to tell them the good news of Christ? Be interesting as I think about Peter's description of his day, empty, emptiness. I wonder if Peter was to come today, you know, to North America or Canada, our sort of culture today. I wonder what he would think of it. I wonder where he would look around and say, it's empty. Here's the emptiness. Here's the emptiness. Or just even in your, in your own sort of scenario, where if you were to look around your week or the people you encounter or the situations you're in, where might Peter come 
and say, you know, this is, this is an empty way of life. Where, where might he see that in your world, in your environments? As you're thinking about that, let me just introduce myself. I'm Jeff Bennett, and just, I say this every week, but it's true. I just feel so privileged to be the lead pastor here at Harbor. And to our Harbor Online community, just welcome to you. So glad that you're connected this morning, whether live or at another time. And hopefully we can connect with you during the week as well. And to our audience here this morning, welcome. I hope I can welcome you at the door personally, but if not, welcome you now. Where would Peter say your world, the people in your world are living in emptiness? I, I sort of wonder too, if Peter was to come to our North American culture, just step in, what, what would he say? He probably would not mince many words, but wouldn't he just look around maybe our entire culture, our entire way of life, and he'd just declare it empty. It's empty, and you guys just keep passing it down from generation to generation to generation. It's total emptiness. Now, what Peter is doing here as he writes these words, he's not just giving us a diagnostic. It's a helpful diagnostic. Emptiness passed on down. But he also then is giving us the opposite, which is how do we find a full life? If one way apart from God is emptiness, then what the opposite of that is a full life. And Peter now is moving into a section in his letter to a church where he's going to explain to them, here's what the full life is. How do we live a full life? If, the, if one alternative is emptiness, then what is the other choice? The thing that we will find as we walk through now this section of Scripture is his answers are a little bit surprising. You may not think this is the road to the full life. And I think maybe this is Peter's point. This is his point. Our culture is so empty at times that the fullness that God offers seems foreign to us. It's like there's so much emptiness and God says this is what fullness is and it seems so different, so foreign that it doesn't make sense. And I think this is where Peter deeply challenges us this morning. So we're in the book of 1 Peter. We're just walking through each week, just continuing on in the verses. Peter's been talking about when you have trials, here's how God's faith sustains us. But now he's into some practical living. So I sure hope you have your Bibles. Open them up, turn them along. It's so good to be able to just follow along. See this in your own Bibles. We're in verses 14 to 16. Peter's going to give one clear thing here. It's very clear. See if you can pick it out. Here's the first key that we'll do today. The key to a full life. Verses 14 to 16. Let me read it. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Do you see what Peter's saying there? Uh, again, there's a fairly clear directive. Peter looks out, he says, you used to live in emptiness. He just said it there, in ignorance. But now he says, here's the key to a full life. Be holy. Live holy lives. And live holy lives as God is holy. If we were summarizing Peter's first point, it would be simply this. You want to live a full life? Be holy like God. And he looks out in the midst of the emptiness that's going on in his day. And I don't think he would say anything much different today. Be holy like God is holy. That's his heart cry towards believers throughout the centuries. 
So as we hear these words, be holy like God, then this is sort of the outline. This is where we need to go this morning. You've got the big idea. But the first question we'd like to answer is then what is holiness? If this is what we are to be, what does it mean to be holy? Then the second question is then how do we actually become holy? What's the process that God leads us through? And we will see much truth in there. It's a little bit hidden, but we're, we'll uncover it. And then the third idea is why do we need to be holy? And that returns to what we've just talked about. So what is holiness? How do we become holy? And then why does it matter? So what is holiness? Holiness refers to God's moral character, means he is pure and blameless and without sin. And it's not only pure and blameless without sin, it means that God, because he is that way, is set apart. He's separated. When you make something holy, it means you set it apart in a special way, and that is what God is. He is separated. He's set apart. He's sinless, blameless, and pure. Here's how D.A. Carson helps us understand the holiness of God. You'll see it on the side screens. Holy is almost an adjective for God. It has to do first and foremost with the sheer godness of God. In this ultimate sense, God is holy, but what God is, is, sorry, what God is, is holy. He is God. And because there's no one, there is no one but one God, he is necessarily separate, different from all other beings. In that sense, his very holiness is what separates him from all other beings. So David Carson is saying there's holiness and there's God, and the two just merge together. You almost can't separate them because God, just in who he is, is this holy God. We, we use the word holy today, and we attach it to things, maybe not so much anymore, but you could think of holy matrimony, you know, holy marriage. What, what does that mean? It means that a man and woman have set themselves apart for each other, and they commit themselves to live in a holy marriage, which means unique and separate and intimate from all other relationships. On my Bible here, it says holy Bible or holy scripture. What does that mean? It means that these words are inspired by the Holy Spirit and are of such perfection that God has set them apart from all other words. Not that there's not other good things we can read and learn from, but these words are precious and unique. They are set apart. There's a perfection to them. They are holy. They're separate. They're different. And in some ways, this is what Peter's looking out on his audience and saying. He's saying, live holy lives. Be separate. Be different. Be distinct from the culture you're in. A.W. Tozer also helps us understand holiness. Here's how he writes it. Neither the writer nor the reader of these words is qualified to appreciate the holiness of God. Quite literally, a new channel must be cut through the deserts of our minds to allow the sweet waters of truth that will heal our great sickness to flow in. We cannot grasp the true meaning of divine holiness by thinking of someone or something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely better. We know nothing like the divine holiness. It stands apart, unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unobtainable. The natural man is blind to it. He may hear God's power and admire his wisdom, but his holiness he can't even imagine. 
That's how D.A. Carson just helps us begin to get our heads around the very holiness of God. Unique, unapproachable, incomprehensible, and unobtainable. We can't even imagine it. And now Peter, after he has reminded his audience of the greatness and the magnitude of who God is, he looks out at them and he says, okay, be holy in all you do. Not just some, be holy in all you do. Be like God in everything. And if you remember back to the beginning, we talked, they were called exiles, the elect exiles. But the exiles part was because they were, to some degree, already living holy lives. They were living out a different moral code in their culture, and their culture didn't like it. They stood out, and they were mocked and ridiculed and ostracized. But now Peter is not relenting. He's saying in some ways they were living holy, but he's saying keep going. God is infinitely holy, and you live as holy people. Be holy like God. That's Peter's heart cry. Don't follow the desires of the world. Don't get pulled into the emptiness of our world, but be holy like God. Now, if I was to pause here and simply say, let's pray and let's go, this, this message would fall then in the category of most impossible message ever to apply, right? Because we raise the holiness of God, and then suddenly the higher he gets, the less able we are to do that. And so you look what Peter says, be holy as God is holy. You're like, Peter, but he's so holy. And the more we see his greatness and his grandeur and his holiness, the more we feel unable to live that out. And so that's why this second question becomes so important. This is why the second question matters so much. If this is what holiness is, then what is the process for us to become holy? And God then, uh, God, we're going to see, helps us in this. It doesn't just depend on us. But God has done some things, and we're going to look back on these verses, 14 to 16, to see how God helps us become holy. And so this is the process. And if you were just reading this quickly, you just take away the big idea. Be holy like God. And it's true. But there's more here. And so let me just point out some things that Peter would tell us that God does to help us in this journey. The first is, you see it right there at the beginning of verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy. You probably missed that when we read it. But here's what Peter's saying. God has taken the initiative, and what has he done? Peter says, God has called you. Now, what does that mean? It means God, the Father, through the proclamation of the gospel. When the gospel comes out of, our, out of someone's mouth and hits someone's ear, God issues a call. It's like he summons somebody. He's calling them, and he calls them to himself in such a way that we repent of our sin and we trust in Christ. This is the call of God. And so where Peter starts is he says, he's reminding them, where did all of this start? God called you. God called you to holiness. And again, if you remember back to elect exiles, we spent a whole week talking about the word election. And why we did that is because almost in every sentence that follows, including this one and this idea, Peter is coming back to this very idea. He's saying God elected you, God chose you. In verse 3, Peter says he's given you a new birth. In verse 4, he says he's secured your inheritance. In verse 5, he said he's shielding your faith. In verse 7, your faith will not perish. And then last week in verse 12, the grace that has come to you. At every point, 
Peter is reminding us of this truth that God has been at work in our lives, and in this case, doing something for us, calling us to holiness. So here's the reality. None of us want to be holy. None of us want to move in that direction in our natural state, but yet God breaks in. God breaks in and he begins to call us to live differently. And so if you are here this morning and you hear me say, be holy like God is holy, and in your heart you're like, yes, yes, I want to live like that. That is the sense of God working in your life. And that's what Peter is reminding them in, to put their confidence in that. That in and of yourselves, you don't want to be holy and you can't be holy, but God has called you to it. And if he is calling you to it, he's going to continue to move you along that journey. You know, in and of ourselves, we don't like the light of holiness. We want the darkness. In and of ourselves, we don't want the fullness of holiness. We want the emptiness of the world. But as God calls us, he changes us, changes our hearts and our desires. And if you're feeling that today, that is God working in you, calling you to a new way of life. And so that's the first thing. God has called us, but there's more here that God is helping us with. The next thing, go back to verse 14. You see it right there at the beginning, as obedient children. We'll come back to the obedient part, but he says, as children. It's the idea that you are a child of God. God has brought you into his family. God has adopted you, and you're going to see this play out further down. You get to verse 17. Peter sticks with this theme. He's like, God is our father. So Peter now is using a family image. He's like, you've been adopted. Not only has God called you, but he's adopted you into the family of God. And just think about what that means for a moment. We were enemies of God. We didn't desire to be holiness. But in that state, God calls us and he loves us and he adopts us. He brings us in to be in right relationship with him. If you just think about that for a moment, think how loving God is. Think how compassionate he is. Think how forgiving he is. Think how wise and how good and how just he is. He does all of that through Christ. And so we look at what God has done for us, and it all is encompassed in his holiness, his holy love, his holy justice, his holy goodness, his holy faithfulness. And what we should look in and say, God, you have adopted me, and I'm now, you are my father. And oh God, I want to be like you. You have done all of these things for me. You're my good, good father, as the song sings. Just think, what is a compliment that children give their parents? That a child would give a father, would say to them, I just want to grow up to be like you. There's some character trait that I see in you that I want to emulate. And this is the same logic Peter is using here. God has brought us into his family. We are now his children. He is our holy father. And so let us try to live out our lives like our father is. Now, there's another great thing here that, that connects all of this because, again, you talk about this and it can feel weighty because we know that we don't measure up, that, that we never can be holy like God is. But do you see the little word that it started with? It says, as obedient children, as obedient children. You see, what God does, he calls us and then he adopts us into his family and we are secure there. We are secure as children of God, and there's nothing we can do to earn that. We, we don't work, we don't perform to earn our adoption. 
We get our adoption for free. It's a gift through Christ. And because he has done all of that and we are secure in that, that's what motivates us. And so this morning, as you're thinking about holiness and maybe the weight falls on you with that, you have to return here to this idea. This is what lifts the weight. He's like, God, you didn't adopt me because of anything I'd done, and I don't stay adopted because of anything I've done. I just because of what you have done for me on the cross. We glory in Christ that he makes it possible for us to be a child of God. We don't have to perform to be accepted. We are accepted, and therefore we live differently. That's the second thing God does. He calls us and he adopts us. But then look at the third thing God does for us to help us become holy. He's doing all the heavy lifting as it were. It says there, but just at the end of verse 14, uh, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. So he's giving a past tense. Again, earlier it was emptiness, here it's ignorance. What does ignorance mean? It means we have a lack of knowledge, a lack of information. We're in a little bit of a darkness, in a, in a fog. And Peter is saying, you used to live in ignorance. But the conclusion is, if you used to, now you no longer live in ignorance. What's happened? They now see things differently. God has opened their eyes. They were blind, but now they see. They were deceived, but now they know the truth. And so what has God done in these moments to move them out of ignorance? Well, you could say God has brought understanding, and that certainly would be true. The word I'm going to use this morning, the third thing God does is he enlightens us. God enlightens us. He opens our eyes. He calls us. He adopts us. And all of this happens simultaneously. God opens our eyes. So we see. Now, what do we see? We see God for who he is. We see more of his holiness, more of his greatness, more of his grandeur. And as we see that, suddenly we realize this is where life is. You know, we once were blind to who all God was and the fullness of life in him. And we just keep turning away. But suddenly, then we just see this, the holiness of God, the greatness of God. And we don't turn away, but we see great value and worth in who God is. I would think some of you know this moment all so well. Maybe it's a moment of reflection. And you think back on your past, something you used to do, something you used to value, something you used to move towards. And you're like, how could I have ever thought that would satisfy? How could I ever have thought that would be good? Why do I turn to that? And you're like, how did it ever change? And you're like, just one day or one month or one year, God opened your eyes and you saw a different way. You saw a different road. This is what Peter is saying here happens here. God opens our eyes and we are changed. We are different. I was thinking of uh, children on Christmas morning. Some of you parents may have played this little joke on, you know, young kids or thought about it. You know, you think of, uh, you get two presents. You know, one present is all wrapped up really nice. It's a big box, but it's just empty, you know. And then the other one is small, and you sort of hide it on the side, maybe not wrapped up as nice, but that's where the real gift is. That's what they want. And you know what happens with kids, right? They come down the stairs Christmas morning, and they see the big box, and, and they just want to open that. Because, of course, bigger is better. It's flashy. It's great. I'm going to open it up. Now, the thing with kids is they open up the box, and it's cardboard. They're like, this is great. This is the best present I ever wanted. You know, and then you as a parent are like, no, no, there's actually something over here that's far better. And they're like, no, I love the box. 
watch. Like, no, no, just open it. We spent a lot of money on this to make you happy, right? But, but in many ways, this is what our culture is like. Our culture just sees these big shiny boxes and we run towards them and they are completely empty. And we just keep running week after week, year after year. But yet in a moment, by God's grace, he opens our eyes and we see the real value in his holiness, the real value of who he is and the worth and the joy and the abundant life that he offers. So Peter says, be holy like God. But you see, God has not just left us on our own to get there. He calls us. He adopts us. He enlightens us. But again, it's, this is not just all God. There is for us to do as well. And so the last two parts, once we understand these three things, we see what God asks us to do. The first there comes in verse 14. Peter says, Do not conform to the evil desires you had. What does it mean to conform? It means to assimilate. It means to comply. It means to act in accordance with the prevailing standards and attitudes and the practices of the day. And so Peter's looking out on his audience and he's seeing what's happening in the world and he's saying, do not be conformed to this world. And so here would be my summary of what Peter says to us today. We stop conforming. Yes, God has done some things for us, but we also then realize that the world is trying to push us into a mold, to push us into a value system. And we say, you know, we are no longer going to conform to these things. Paul writes it very similarly in Ephesians 4. After going through some of the same doctrine, you'll see it on the side screens. Here's how Paul says it. Put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and put on the new self. Again, Paul says it almost identically as Peter says it here. His words are, first put off your old self and then put on the new self, and in the middle be made new in the attitude of your mind. Peter has given us the three things God has done. That's where he wants us to change our thinking. And now he says, Paul says, put off. Peter says, stop conforming. Peter says, no longer follow the evil desires. Paul says, the deceitful desires. It's the same idea. Put off. Put off these old desires. Stop conforming to the evil desires of the world. But there's one little last thing I want to show you. It says, do not conform to the evil desires you had. Did you see that there? It's past tense. Peter's writing to the, those who are in Christ, who God has called and adopted and enlightened. And he says, your desires were former. They're gone. And this is Peter referring back again to the new birth. God has done something in their lives. He has regenerated them. He's given them a new birth. Now they have new desires on the inside. It, before it was just the old nature, but now there's this new nature with new desires. And Peter says, do not go back to the old ways. Let them fade into the past. He's saying this, they're not your old desires, if you are in Christ, are not the defining power of your life anymore. They are your former desires. They are not new. Don't conform to them anymore. Move forward. Don't conform. Put them off and pursue the new desires. So that's the first thing Peter says we need to stop doing. Put off some things. Put off some things. But then he adds the positive of it, and we've already talked about this. It's in the first verse. Uh, as obedient children, 
And certainly the command, be holy, would fall in this category. And here's what Peter is saying. We start obeying. So one is a negative. We stop conforming to the evil desires. But now on the positive start, we, we start to obey. We start to live in accordance with these new desires that God has given us. Just a, a little aside here, about six weeks ago, I recommended the book Disciplines of Grace by Jerry Bridges. I know many of you have commented how much you're enjoying that. That's actually his second most popular book. His most popular book, again, that has stood the test of time, is a book called The Pursuit of Holiness. And really, those two books work together in wonderfully complementary ways. And if you're enjoying Discipline of Grace, then I would recommend The Pursuit of Holiness because it really does help with this topic as well. So I'll just say that as an aside. But Peter is giving us two things. One, on the negative side, stop conforming. And now on the positive side, be holy, start obeying God. And so if I was to ask it this way, where do you need to be more holy? Where, where do you need to be more holy? Where do you need to stop conforming? Where have we missed out on all who God is and find our satisfaction and joy in him? Maybe for some of you, it's to stop being angry or to stop gossip, to stop lust, to stop bitterness, to stop worry. But then on the other side, we add things to that. We pursue God's holiness. So it's, I want to be more patient. I want to be more loving, more self-controlled, more forgiving, more trusting. Where this morning might God be saying to you, even as Peter says it, be holy like I am holy. In what area do you need to throw off, stop conforming? And what do you need to put on? That's the process that Peter calls us to. Yes, God has done so much for us, but we also must fully invest. So God calls, God adopts, God enlightens. And then we stop conforming and we start obeying. And it's not like we do it once and say, hey, check the box, I'm done. It's continual. It's every day. It's the same thing Paul said. Keep putting off and keep putting on. And then our third question was this. Why does this matter? Why does this matter? Well, it relates back to our title. God created us. He designed us. He knows what is best for us. And if you want to get the most out of this life, then live like the one who is perfectly holy. Live like the one who is perfectly good. The holy life equals the good life. The holy life is the abundant life. The holy life is the full life. This is what Peter is saying here in clear and uncomplicated ways. The other road lead is emptiness, but this leads to fullness. I was thinking, and I've thought about it over the last month, Jesus' words on the Sermon on the Mount. And if you remember that picture, he's there on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. He's on a little bit of an incline, a hill there, and then the crowds would have probably been on the hill slope looking up at him. And then behind the crowds back, Jesus would have been able to see it is the Sea of Galilee and Capernaum there down below him. And he preaches this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. Probably gave similar content quite a bit of times, but near the end of that, he looks at the crowd and he says, wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many people are on it. And you could imagine just the crowd hearing those words from Jesus. 
You know, broad is the way, and they think, well, how did I get on this broad way? I don't want to be on it. And Jesus says that the gate is really wide. You, 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 can, you, you don't need to try that hard. You just wander around through our world. You'll get on the broad way, and it leads to destruction. And many, many, it's the popular road. Many people are on it. But then Jesus says the second part of that. He says, but small is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and only a few find it. There's this small gate, and there's this narrow way. Jesus says, not a very crowded road. There's only a few people on it, but at the very end, there is life. In fact, all along the way, it leads to life. And you can imagine Jesus' crowd, the crowd thinking, well, well how do, what do I do? What's the application, Jesus? How do I respond? It's actually how he started it. He said, make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. Jesus looked out at the crowd that he was talking to, and he was so clear with them, wasn't he? There's a broad gate, there's a broad road, it's popular, and it ends in destruction. But please, Jesus, he's saying to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow gate. It's a narrow gate, it's a narrow way, and you won't find many on the road, but it ends with life. Jesus is compelling his audience to choose that course. And as you're here today, what's the gate? Maybe you've never ever, or maybe to the today, you would be humble enough to admit that you had lived an empty life. Maybe as you're watching online or here today, God has humbled you this morning and you realize, you know, my life has been apart from God and it is emptiness. Then take Jesus' word, make every enter to enter through the narrow gate. Who is the gate? It's Jesus. It's himself. There's only one way onto that narrow road and it's through confessing our sin and it's through trusting in Jesus as the forgiver of our sin, the leader, the Lord, the king of our lives. And Jesus would say, make every effort, make every effort to get through. And so this morning, would you humble yourselves? Would you humble yourself? If you've never done that before, would you cry out to God? And would you say, God, would you forgive me? I turn from my sin and I trust in you as the narrow gate. Help me to walk on this narrow road. And then I know for many of the rest of us, you know Christ. You've entered through that narrow gate. You've celebrated that you did nothing to deserve the call of God to get you through that gate. God was just gracious and loving to you and you're on the narrow road. And if you're on that narrow road, your heart today is, oh God, help me stay on that narrow road. Help me not to stray. Help me not to get distracted over here, over here by all the, all the old desires that are in me. And so here would be your prayer. God, may you help me have a vision for your holiness. May I see you for all that you are. May you remind me of how great you are because that is what will keep me on this road. The interesting thing today about our culture, and I think Peter would say this, is the stunning insignificance of God. God keeps getting smaller and smaller and less important. And I hope today, to some degree, we might see the awesome stunningness, awestruck, almost frightening next week, presence of God, that God is everything, that our lives would be permeated by God. We would see his holiness and we would not try it in any way to lower that, but we would say, oh God, may you help me, Lord, help me to continue to pursue you and be holy. But the cry of Peter, the cry that he saw was God was in everything. And may that be our heart's cry harbor. 
God when we wake up, God at lunchtime, God in the afternoon, God as we come home from work, God in the evening, God as we go to bed, God in the middle of the night, God is our motive, God is our guide, God is our comfort and strength, our truth and our joy. The Christian life is lived in God, ever aware of him, ever submitted to him, ever trusting in him, ever hoping in him. May God just continue to fill us with a vision of who he is. Let me pray. Father, we get a glimpse of your holiness and we know we've fallen far short. And so God, thank you, Lord. We don't want to leave here today. God, we thank you that we are righteous because of Christ. All of our righteousness is found in him, and we thank you for that. God, we thank you that we are secure in your family. We have been adopted in. God, we can hardly believe it ourselves, but God, we thank you for that. And so, God, as you have done all of this for us, Lord, may we revel in your grace. God, may we see more of who you are, and may you help us to live more, more the way that you want us to. Lord, may you incline our hearts down the narrow road that leads to life. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. You may encounter someone this week whose life feels empty, and they may not know there's anything different. But as you do, as God would open up an opportunity, wouldn't you share Jesus with them? Harbor, we are sent.